In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. But one of the young men, Daniel, resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. Daniel then said to the guard, Please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food, and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this, and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. Wasn't that amazing? I love that picture, and I love seeing it kind of all start to come together, and all of a sudden you're like, oh my goodness, that's asparagus, and suddenly I was craving a radish, which I think that's a unique thing to make me crave a radish. Well done, Molly. Thank you for um, doing that painting for us and, and helping us as we dive in to our series, Brave, talking specifically about the life of the prophet Daniel. You know, when it comes to the idea of bravery, when we think about what it is to be brave, um, probably a lot of thoughts come to mind. I just know this. When I was young, I was not. I was, oh man, I was the biggest chicken on the face of the earth. Somewhere in Colorado and California, my family's like, that's right, preach the truth, Eric. You were a coward. And I'm like, that's mean, because that hurts my feelings, but it's true. I was a terrible chicken. I remember one time, my parents had these good friends in California, Bob and Sue Gibson. They had two daughters, Robin and Stacy, and we would go over and hang out with them, and our parents would like go to dinner. And we went one time, and we were little. I, I remember being very young, and um, we were over at their house. Our parents had gone out to dinner, and we were sitting there, and they knew I was, they tormented me a little because I was such a chicken. And, um, and Lincoln said, did you hear that? And I'm like, oh, no, what? You know, I was just ready to be terrified at any minute. And um, he goes over to the back door, and he, and he kind of looks, moves the curtain and looks, and their Doberman was sitting at the back door. And he, like, like kind of did something at him. Well, Lincoln, my brother, who was like, you know, in my mind, he was just a mountain of a man. Not that you're not a mountain, Link, but anyways. Um, but he goes, ah. Oh, like that, and jumps back. Well, then Stacy, the, the oldest daughter of the Gibsons, is like, ah! And then Robin's like, ee! And then I let loose with a throat whistle that dogs remember to this day. It echoes throughout California to the present day. I let loose with a scream that even as I ran and fled the scene in white-faced terror and running away, I, oh my goodness, I remember hearing myself thinking, wow, I've admitted that death is coming, right? I was running so fast through their house, I went out the front door and jumped off the steps, headed for the lawn. I don't know where I was going, but I was getting away from whatever the, the scary thing was that had come to get us. And um, my dad actually caught me. They were in the front yard and they were talking. They had gotten back from dinner. My dad's like, what's the matter? And I was like, ah, oh, something's here to eat me, you know? And, 
I was the biggest chicken, and I take a lot of heat for it because, um, you know, that kind of reputation and story um, sticks with you. Well, there's another story on the other end of the spectrum of bravery that has stood the test of time, and it's the story of the prophet Daniel. Now, the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, it's in the latter part of the Old Testament after after Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Songs, Ecclesiastes, then you get into the prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and then um, Daniel is the following, kind of right there among the major prophets. And Daniel was a young nobleman from Israel, but here's the thing, Daniel lived a life that we remember. When we learn Bible stories as little kids, who here remembers like learning about Daniel in the lion's den, right? And you're like terrified, you're like with lions, how scary, right? Horrible. And Daniel in the lion's den, and then Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, and Daniel and the disembodied hand at the feast of Belteshazzar, his meanie, meanie, tickle you farson, and it's this awesome moment of like, oh, and, and it's so scary, and Daniel is the one, he's right there. The book of Daniel tells us of what it is to be brave, but not brave like, you know, it's one thing for me to be brave in my house, right, to be brave and and defend my own place. Daniel was brave in a scary place. Daniel was a noble who came out of Jerusalem. He was one of the noble children who was taken in exile when Babylon sacked Jerusalem 586 BC. So about 600 years before Christ was born, Daniel is taken from Jerusalem into Babylon into exile and Daniel would be brave in a scary place. He would be brave in a scary place and he would live faithfully for God in a place that actively opposed and took captive the people of God and many of the articles of the temple of God were brought back to Babylonia. So we recognize that Daniel was this powerful, stalwart figure of faithful living in a time of great fear and terror and heartache. Jerusalem had fallen and they were left as exiles living in the courts of the king Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. We talked about prophecy earlier in this year. Man, what a timely word that was, wasn't it? And Daniel, you will recognize in this series, some of the prophecies you heard during the prophecy series are going to emerge again in Brave because Daniel had a prophetic um, uh, apocalyptic style of poetry writing, but also the visions he in, saw and interpreted and put into uh, writing is, um, is this prophetic kind of language about the end of days and what's going to go on. So Daniel, you'll, you'll see that come up. Daniel is just one of these people who exudes bravery. Daniel and his friends lived in a different world than they had grown up in, and now they were being trained in this new world to follow new customs. They were being forced to follow different gods or kind of pushed towards that, and we get to see now in the reading of Daniel chapter 1, we get to read and see what they responded like when the time for bravery came. It says this, 
And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into, oh, sorry, I jumped out. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and he besieged it. So he encircled the city, he built siege ramps, and he basically laid waste to it. These, um, and the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands, into Nebuchadnezzar's hands, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia. And he put in the treasure house, put these things in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered, I can never say this name, Ashpenaz, I think that's right, Ashpenaz, from someone in the, in the crowd here, just save me and I appreciate that for that person. Ashpenaz, chief of the court of officials, he ordered that he would bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and from the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for learning, for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service among those who were chosen were some from Judah. Azariah, the chief official, gave them new names. To Daniel, he gave the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel, himself, Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine and asked the chief official for permission to not eat of it. So we can see that Daniel's already kind of resolving something in himself in this first step of bravery. Now, God had caused the official to show favor and compassion for Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my Lord the king who has assigned your food and drink, and why should he see that you are looking worse than the other young men your age? He doesn't want to get in trouble. The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard, whom the chief um, official had appointed over Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Please tell your servants, or please test, I'm sorry. Please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat at the, the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this, and he tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate, at the, who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and drink, the food and wine, and he gave them vegetables instead. Then the, to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. Remember, that's what the king wanted. People quick to learn, quick to understand, and, and just given a bright mind. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them 
into his service. The chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So so they entered into the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his entire kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Like, just think with me. Like, Daniel remained in that position till the first year of King Cyrus. Daniel lived his life in Babylon, but he didn't live his life. So he was in Babylon, but he wasn't of Babylon. He was in it, but not of it. Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, had been thrown into a new world. They weren't just moved, they were immersed. They were bathed in this new kind of reality of Babylon. They were trying to get these young men to become of Babylon. They wanted the best and brightest to become Babylonians. And Daniel, Shadrach, and Meshach, and Abednego all fixed their gaze on honoring God with their lives, not indulging in the really good food that was presented them, and to be faithful. And I think that's important. I think it's important that they were specially selected in this new land to have all these privileges when the other Jews who came with them would have been slave labor and would have been living really hard lives. And they were selected and brought up and given all these privileges and they did not like lean in and get all that they could. They were to live in the palace, to be part of the culture, language, and history, to learn the religion of the Babylonians And it wasn't their faith. It wasn't their religion. They were to indulge in the food that the king gave them. Here's the thing. Because, you know, if you're you're in a place where, where you've known great want, if they lived through the siege of 586 B.C. and then marched all the way across the Arabian Desert to right around like the Euphrates River in Iraq where Baghdad is and stuff, that's how far they walked on foot They had to look rough. They were probably emaciated and starving and hungry. They had known want, and here they are, given the choice food of King Nebuchadnezzar, his wine, his food, and all the pleasure of it, and they said, no, no, no. And they said, we're not gonna eat that. And it it seems to me that um, Daniel had a check in his spirit. It grieved his spirit to think of eating this food. And we, though scripture doesn't implicitly say that this was bad food, we can infer from the text that most likely, likely it was food that had been offered as a sacrifice to various deities and gods, lowercase g, in the Babylonian god kind of religion structure. The meat was cooked before them or cooked on them and the wine was poured out as a libation to the, to the deity. So Daniel is most likely saying, I won't eat meat offered to idols. I won't do it. And God honors this in his life. We can see that Daniel had a sense of being placed in Babylon for a reason. It wasn't happenstance. Yes, it was a brutal situation, but he didn't see God as distant. He saw God as purposeful right there in Babylon working through him. He would not compromise. Daniel wouldn't compromise his relationship with God in any way, especially with the food, and take part in things that would grieve God's heart. So he said no to the food. 
He said no to the food. He set himself apart. I want you to do me a favor. Take this Daniel story and kind of pick it up and just set it down right there. Because I'm going to take us to a different story real quick. I'm fascinated with uh, Mount Everest. I just, the climbing of Everest, it just kind of fascinates me. And Erica showed me a video the other day of these long line rescue people. And um, I just, I mean, I sit transfixed on it when I look and see what they do. So here's what you have. You have different kind of base camps when you ascend Everest. And there's this one guy, he's a native Nepalese climber, and um, he's good at mountaineering. He's climbed Everest twice, which I'm like, that is so awesome. But he's climbed it twice himself. He's summited two times. But now he does something different. Now he's part of the long line rescue team. You think, what's that, right? But the long line rescue team is this fascinating, super brave group of people who go up in the helicopters. And you gotta remember, Everest is like 27,000 some feet tall. So when they're in these helicopters, they're up there at altitudes that are crazy for choppers to fly at. Mind you, Everest is known for a clear sunny day becoming a blizzard like that. It's this crazy, I mean, it's just hyper-environmental, right? All the elements are kind of playing together. The wind moves quickly and all this stuff through the mountain peaks there in the Himalayas. And he's part of the long line rescuers. And I love this, this clip that we can't show you because of uh, copyright, but there's this clip. He says, of the 34 long line rescues, so he's talking to a camera like this. He's like, of the 34 long line rescues, I've done 21. And then he looks at the camera and you're like, you're awesome. I like you so much because he's so cool. But here's the cool thing about it. He goes up into this helicopter, he hooks into a harness, and he goes by long line down, most often into the ice fields of the Kahumba, which is, it's pretty cool, it's the early stages of your ascent of Everest, and he goes down and he gets injured, and um, sometimes even deceased climbers, but injured climbers are the ones they, they count, and they get them out, they rescue them, so he goes down by a long line. Now, he doesn't just see the person like, yeah, and jump out, no, he hooks into a harness and he descends super long. Long lines. I mean, the, it's just the chopper's way up here, and it's a really long line down. It's long line rescues. They get the person settled and secured, then they hook them in, and he takes them out. He takes them out, but he stays attached by radio because he knows the environmental effect of what this chopper is trying to do. The helicopter is telling him, hey, it looks like we have a storm coming in. You're going to have to move. He's in constant communication, and he never, never disconnects himself from the chopper. He always stays with a carabiner hooked to him, and he begins fastening the other person in. He's a long-line rescuer who has a deep connection to the agency that is actually rescuing. He stays connected to the chopper, and he's rescued 21 of the 34 rescues they've done, and it's incredibly dangerous. And you look at it and you think, this is amazing because they're in constant communication between the pilot and the rescuer because he's saying, hey, I need to come over a little. There's a chasm, an ice chasm here in the ice field or, or this cliff is in a, in a dangerous spot. The reason they long line is because the chopper can't land there. It's too dangerous. So you see the kind of dynamic between the person doing the saving and the people helping them, but they're a great distance apart and there's a line. 
and a communication link. And they're constantly communicating, letting, what needs, letting them know what needs to happen in order to rescue someone. They must stay connected. They know the mountain. They're aware of the dangers of the mountains, the wind currents of the mountains, the storm of the mountains, and the geography on it. And they stay connected as, as a rescuer to the traveler, but more importantly to the rescue agency, the helicopter. They stay connected all the way through it. And Jesus gives us advice that sounds very similar to this long line rescuer. Jesus says this in the Gospel of John, chapter 15. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you want to bear any fruit in this kingdom, you must stay in me. You must remain in me. So Jesus is saying there is this line between us. He is the agency of salvation, but we are the rescuers on a long line into this world, and we must stay in communication. Jesus' words are this, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit, but apart from me, you can do nothing. So if that long line rescuer cut his rope, he no longer is someone in a position to rescue. He actually needs saving himself, right? So we understand Jesus is saying much the same thing. Apart from me, you can do none of that. Actually, Jesus' words are quite shocking. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away. It withers, it dies, and is good for nothing but the fire pit. Remember last Wednesday here in Zealand, right? Last Wednesday, we're all like, everything's normal, and then like all of a sudden, this thunderstorm comes through and just like trees are down and there's branches everywhere and it's crazy and big trees are toppled and it's just like, it's crazy and they're all leafy, right? First few days, those branches laying on the ground are all green and leafy. You go look at those branches just a few days later and the, the leaves have all curled up and begun to dry. The wood is already turning a brownish color and beginning to weather in the hot sun and you realize that when you're disconnected, when the branch loses its connection to its source, it's dead. It doesn't kill the tree, it kills the branch that disconnected. And that's what Jesus is saying. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit and show yourself as my disciples. Friends, we are the long line rescuers in this world. We are the people connected to the agency of salvation, Jesus Christ, in relationship and in, um, in a deep and, and faithful relationship of prayer and service and life in the word. We are connected to the saving agency, salvation, Jesus. And we are the long line rescuers who go into very perilous situations to do one thing, to save those who apart from the gospel will never know the hope of Jesus, and they will die without the gospel in their lives. But Jesus warns, he warns the disciples. He knows that though they're the long line rescuers, people and the world will hate them. If the world hates you, Jesus said, keep in mind, it hated me first. It hated me first. Think of how brave Daniel was to be in Babylon, but not of Babylon. 
and to stand out like that. Think of how brave that long line rescuer is to be on the mountain but not of it, right? He, he's, he's separate, he's connected to a different life source. Think of you and I in this world. Think of our, our teacher, our savior, Jesus, who showed us with his life what it was to be in the world but not of the world, to see the world's values and to work within the, the world but not be owned by the world's values, but be owned by the gospel value, the value of salvation. We look at this and we understand that Jesus says, if the world hates you, keep in mind, they hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as, your, as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. But I have chosen you out of the world. Oh, it's so good to be chosen, isn't it? People chosen by God for his purposes to be out of the world. Well, not to be out of the world, not to be of the world. We're in it, but not of it. We're participant, but we're long-line people. We are people there as as a means of salvation, not as a means of participating on the world's culture or standard. We live as people who know our identity isn't in this world. We are in the world, not of it. And that's a tough place to be. It's not easy to be in it, not of it, but it's... It's not impossible. It's not impossible. You know, if you let go of the rope, like that long line climber, you disconnect yourself from the source, from the thing that's doing the saving. You lose your lifeline. You lose your usefulness. If you're a branch cut off from the vine, you lose the ability to receive the nutrients and bear the fruit. If, you, if you're removed like that, if you are of the world, you lose your connection to Jesus Christ. And we need to understand that the church doesn't have the freedom or opportunity to lose its usefulness. So I wanna talk, give some examples of work, family, and school where we have to be people who see and understand our moment of being a long long line rescuer into those settings. So let's just talk work. It seems like Christmas is far away so I can use this. Christmas parties at work can be really interesting. All the politics are at play in a Christmas party, right? And you see if you work in a secular organization, um, you'll see quite often the company will open up the bar tab. And they'll be like, hey guys, good year, drink up. And a lot of people are like, you got it, boss man. And they get into it. And it's kind of a a devastating scene when you see how some people act when the bar tabs open and they'll just get lit. And you may be at one of these parties going, how can I be a long line rescuer in this scenario? How can I be someone who's in the party but not of the party? How can I participate with a different set of standards? And here's the thing, a different sense of intrinsic motivation. What's the motivation that causes these people to drink themselves into a bleary state? Because that motivation shouldn't be in us. We should have a motivation that seeks to redeem people out of those situations and say to them, like there's more to life, showing people what it is to have fun and celebrate without losing your mind and taking, and like gluttony, just taking over, taking all you can for yourself and eventually making a fool of yourself and wrecking your reputation. It happens all the time at Christmas parties. We can look at it for, um, for things when it comes to, um, like for school. Let's just talk about school for a minute. 
as a former athlete, I emphasize former, um, but as a former athlete and with a son and daughter who are athletes, I know this, the locker rooms can be really dangerous places. A lot of things get said and go on in the locker rooms. You know, you've heard the term, oh, it's just locker room talk or that's boys being boys. No, it's not. Um, it's wrong and most often it's repugnant and it's part of this social system of hidden acceptance of absolute depravity. And here's the thing, you will stand out if you don't participate, and you might even be hate, you probably will be hated for it. But you'll be known as someone who can be trusted as a confidant, someone who can be trusted and called on in another person's time of need. And when does the long line rescuer come into play? But when a climber who's very skilled and talented finds themselves in a moment of need, in a moment of rescue, you become the person they call on. You have an opportunity as a Christian in the schools, in the locker rooms, in the different settings to stand out and be different. You have an opportunity on social media to not portray yourself only as physical goods and services to be gawked at or taken in visually, but you're a person with a unique personality and a God-giftedness. You don't have to sell yourself for likes and approval. You don't have to sell yourself to be retweeted or different things. You don't have to gossip and destroy other people online. This is for students and adults alike. We need to look and understand that we are called to be in the world, but not of the world in these places. What does it mean to be in a locker room, but not of it? To be on social media, but not of the culture of it. To transform it and subversively change the use from destroying things to being life-giving. We've all experienced the life-giving nature, hopefully, of social media over the past few months in the shutdown. It's been a great tool, but it's also very destructive. And then there's... Home. You know, what if you're raised in a non-Christian home? I know a girl, her name was Katie, her name is Katie, um, and she was in one of the youth groups I led, and um, she was the only Christian in her home, and while she would pray at the meal table, her family would throw veggies and stuff at her and like tease her and, and mock her. It was a hard place to be. But she said, I just try not to get mad because I know one day they'll, they'll, need, they'll need to have a question answered. And I know Jesus, and I know Jesus loves them. And she would just pray every night at the meal table, and they would mock her. They would heckle her, and she was a high schooler. What does it mean if you're a non-Christian family to be in prayer for your entire family for years and maybe not see the results? but just put them into the hand of God day after day and pray for them. And when they come together, not engage in the family gossip and the social power plays, but to engage in loving one another, celebrating life and opportunity, success, and in every opportunity possible, bringing Jesus into the conversation of an unchurched family member, not to shame them, but to invite them to a fullness of life. Here's what we know, friends. We have an opportunity in our work, in our schools, in our home, in who we are to be a lifeline to the world because we know this, Jesus knew the danger we face, we would face. He understood it. And so he said these words in John chapter 17 in the high priestly prayer where Jesus is around the, the um the Passover meal, the night that he was betrayed, and he's sitting with his disciples, and Jesus prays this prayer. I am coming to you now. He's speaking to his father. But I say these things while I'm still in the world 
so that they, the disciples, may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the, wor- wor- <clears throat> and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world anymore than even I am of the world. My prayer is not that you would take them out of the world, but that you would protect them from the evil one. Did you hear that? My prayer is not that you take them out of this world, but that you protect them while they're there. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them, I sanctify myself, that they too may truly be sanctified. Being brave starts small. You think of these great acts of courage, but it starts small. It's, it started with food to a hungry, probably teenage boy who has lost everything. It started with food and saying, you know what, no, I'm not going to eat things that would break the heart of God because they've been sacrificed to idols. My life is different. I'll take vegetables. I'll hit the salad bar, sans dressing, Right? And you look at it and you're like, it started with food. It was just a little thing. But in Daniel's life, it became the catalyst to everything. It was a little thing. Bravery always starts small. It doesn't have to be a big thing. Trust me, it'll grow. It'll grow. When I think back um, to Erica's uh, thesis that she wrote for her degree in history, she wrote on three women who resisted the Third Reich's effort of the Holocaust, the final solution, the killing of Jews. But they resisted from a place that they weren't Jewish, right? They had no reason to resist other than their moral sense of duty. So these three women she researched and wrote about worked tirelessly, tirelessly to save people whom they didn't know. They they didn't know. And they were brave, but it started with with very little things. There's this one, and I'll only use her name. I won't use the others, but Sophie Skoll is this young girl. She's a German girl, and we actually had the privilege of seeing the White Rose Memorial to her in Munich, Germany, where she was executed. And she, her, her form of resistance was just her bravery was keeping her Bible when all books in Nazi Germany were banned, and you could only read Mein Kampf. She was like, no, I'm keeping my Bible. It was, it was an act of, of like defiance against the Reich. Another Dutch lady, she would not say the Heil Hitler. When they told them to do that, she would not say it. She met, messed up the words. Enough, it sounded enough like it that she wouldn't get in trouble, but she messed it up enough that it didn't sear her conscience. You know, I think of the, the other lady. She was in uh, the Warsaw ghettos, and she would sneak in little bits of food for the starving kids in the Warsaw ghettos in Poland. When you, when you look at them, you're like, those are just little things. Those are little acts of bravery. And these women, man, they, they defied the Third Reich. They saved thousands of lives. It, it, it stirs the soul. Yeah, the big things came, but what'd they do? They built the muscle of little things. They did little acts of bravery, little acts of defiance against things that break the heart of God. 
wasn't these huge things at first. It was small acts, building the muscle to be brave one day when it really, really counts. When something convicts your heart, church, don't squash it. Don't think it doesn't matter when God convicts your heart about a little thing of food maybe or something you're listening to or something you watch. Don't think it's something small. It may be an act of bravery for you to become the long line rescuer one day in the life of someone who apart from your presence would go to hell apart from Jesus Christ. But if you act bravely, we become the agents of rescue in this world. Bravery starts small. What little things is God convicting in you? Obey it. Obey it and be brave. Be brave because in the end the world will hate you. But the world's love is pretty fickle. But the love of God endures forever. Be brave, my friends. If he is for us, who can be against us? Pray with me. Lord Jesus Christ, we love you and thank you for who you are. The work you're doing in this world through brave Christians throughout it. For the glory of Jesus. So we pray today, come Lord Jesus and fill your church. Make us brave. Don't allow us to be um, indulgent of our own cowardice. But may we be brave, not by our own will, but by the Holy Spirit filling us. And little brave decisions where you get involved, God, and you bring about the salvation of many. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. When we talk about bravery... We always think of these big, magnificent moments, but we forget that it's in the little things. It's in the small acts that build up the muscle within us to respond to the big moments. Church, I invite you to the spiritual gym where you're going to build in little disciplines, little moments, the bravery to act in the big moments. People like that, uh, people, those brave people, they don't just happen. They don't just like pop out of thin air. It's not a sudden epiphany. What it is, is it's a lifetime of little decisions getting to a moment, uh, a crossroads where they act. The church is at a crossroads. The church is at its crossroads right now in our culture and in our moment. We need Christians to be brave, to hold on to the truth of the gospel and do so unapologetically. And if we haven't been attending to the relationship that we have with Jesus Christ by being brave to let the Spirit of God speak a word of correction and then be brave to repent and live in change and recognize maybe some people won't like us. Maybe we'll be on the outside, far better on the outside of culture than on the outside of the kingdom of God. My friends, I invite you to begin letting your mind go down a pathway to, to bravery and see the place that God's calling you to. He is not calling you to a passive receive only faith. He's calling you to a life of action. Action on behalf of a world that is dying apart from him. And you're the long line rescuer. With that knowledge, with that responsibility, I invite you, get your devotions. 
Get your devotions. You can find them online at foundrychurch.net. If you need one, you can email us at info at foundrychurch.net. We'll make sure we get them to you. Get in your devotions and spend time in the spiritual gymnasium building the muscle of bravery so that when your moment comes, you may act on behalf of those who are far from God. As you go into your week, may the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, grace and peace until we meet again, my friends.